Welcome to Commercializing Living Therapies with CCRM. In this podcast, we'll be engaging with salon gene therapy industry experts and influencers and sharing insider insights, information, and trends. CCRM is a leader in developing and commercializing regenerative medicine-based technologies and cell and gene therapies. I'm your host, Krista Lamb, and on today's episode, we'll be talking about regulatory considerations for the predicted boom in cell and gene therapies over the next few years. Our guests today are Dr. Michael Rossi-Miles, Executive Director for the Center for Oncology, Radiopharmaceuticals, and Research at Health Canada, and Dr. Josephine Lembong, Senior Manager of Science and Industry Affairs at the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine. Welcome to the show. It is so lovely to have both of you here today. Thank you, Krista. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to be here, Krista. Thank you. Wonderful. And Michael, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your role at Health Canada? Sure. Uh, My name is Michael Rossi-Miles. I'm currently the director for the Center for Oncology, Radiopharmaceuticals and Research. Um, I started off at Health Canada as a research scientist um, and moved my way up through management and now into the executive country. Wonderful. And Josephine? Sure, yeah. So I'm the Senior Manager of Science and Industry Affairs at the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine, uh, or ARM for short, um, for, for those that are unfamiliar. Um, we're a nonprofit advocacy group that are representing the, uh, the voice of the cell and gene and tissue and broader regenerative medicine sector. Um, uh, at ARM, I manage their technical priorities and work with our member companies to push the cell and gene therapy manufacturing best practices projects forward through workshops, white papers, and different engagements with the regulators. Um, I'm a chemical engineer by training, and I've been in the cell and gene therapy field for about 14 years now. Wonderful. So we've seen speculation for the last little while about a coming boom in cell and gene therapies over the next few years. And in fact, the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine reports that there's currently about 2,000 cell and gene therapies in clinical trials worldwide. So Josephine, I'd love to ask you about how regulators in the US and Europe are preparing for this. Sure, yeah. Um, I I think I'll start by saying, you know, more, more than ever before, I think the regulators are very engaged with the industry, which is which is great. They are present in a lot of industry events. They interact with the different stakeholders through, you know, just roundtables, uh, consortiums, workshops, and they really are committed to working with us, the, the drug developers, the manufacturers, the patients, to really facilitate bringing more of these products to to reach the patients. I can speak probably more about the FDA than about the EMA. Uh, I'm I'm based in the U.S. and just more familiar about the U.S. regulations. So, you know, the FDA last year established this OTP super office, which really shows their commitment, I think, to addressing the exponential growth in the development of of cell and gene therapy products. They, you know, along with the establishment of the office and the reorganization in there, they have a lot of new initiatives to really help particularly cell and gene therapy forward Um, and you know, I don't want to list all, all the things that they're doing, but uh, I think some of them that are worth pointing out, um, there's an, a couple new pilots. Uh, so there's a start pilot where participants can obtain uh, frequent and regular advice, um, kind of ad hoc communications with the FDA staff to address just product-specific development issues, really. And then there's the Rare Disease Endpoint Advancement Pilot Program, which provides a mechanism for sponsors to collaborate with the FDA throughout the efficacy endpoint development process. 
And if, if we're talking about Europe, you know, I'm going to do my best and in, 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 um, including our, our Europe folks as well. But there's this collaboration on, on gene therapy global, um, which initially includes regulate, like regulatory members of the ICH, uh, which I believe includes the US, EU, Canada, and Japan. And the goal of the pilot is to for the partners to participate in internal regulatory meetings with sponsors of, of new gene therapy products. And the reviews would be shared with the regulatory partners. So to increase the efficiency of the reviews globally. I think, you know, one of the points that Peter Marks said over and over again is that, um, you know, over the pandemic, we learned that kind of the global regulators realized that what we do is more common than divergent. And uh, what they do at the FDA has a lot of uh, and come in with what the AMA is doing. So there are some subtle differences that uh, in the way they do things. But if we can all harmonize our requirements and pull forces together to review these products, then we can make it much more attractive for people to go into the rare disease space. Wonderful. And Michael, I'd love to know a little bit about what Health Canada is doing in this space. Yeah. Um, so uh, you're talking about the coming boom, but but I would say that that boom's already started with CAR T cell uh, therapies, and and there's been a significant number of those approved over the last uh, few years. Um, but we really started preparing for this boom, um, I would say decades ago. Um, <clears throat> so I was brought into Health Canada as a, a to start up a stem cell research program. Um, with the knowing that um, there was a lot of unknowns with cell and gene therapies and and what risks we would be expected to mitigate uh, with those products, and so um, I started up a, a my research program with uh, mesenchymal stem cells and exploring a bit with um, gene therapy in those uh, cells. Um, that program has started in two thousand and eight, uh, but we've expanded that now well beyond just mesenchymal stem cells, looking at uh, CAR-Ts, uh, allogeneic CAR-Ts, which could be coming shortly, um, uh, iPSCs, uh, induced pluripotent stem cells. Uh, I'm looking at uh, the risks and, and the sort of the manufacturing processes um, for making products uh, in, in those spaces. <clears throat> um, so it really began with that research, um, but um, we also more recently have been expanding our regulatory frameworks uh, to recognizing that, you know, some of these therapies uh, may not fit in the current regulatory frameworks we have. And so one of the pathways we've created is um, has been called the ATP pathway, the advanced therapeutic products pathway, and some people call it the sandbox. Um, what that pathway is, is it's really an explorative um, framework that allows us to sort of tailor the way that we regulate around the specifications of the product itself. Um, we have yet to put a product through that pathway. And one of the advantages of the pathway is it begins by exploring um, whether or not we could regulate uh, a novel product through the existing frameworks. And and so we, we start off right away with knowing exactly what we need to do um, to regulate these products. And if it doesn't fit within our regulatory frameworks, then we do a lot of engagement with um, the manufacturers, industry, um, to try to figure out, you know, what are the novel aspects that don't fit and what sort of policies and guidances can we develop to make it fit and bring them into um, 
into Canada to provide access for Canadians. The other things we've been doing, and, and uh, in line with what Josephine was speaking to, is international collaboration. Um, so Canada is uh, often not the first market that people come to. So it's really important uh, that um, we're harmonized with our international partners. Uh, and so we do a lot of work with the WHO. We do a lot of work with the uh, Food and Drug, U.S. Food and Drug Administration and with EMA. Um, we also have collaborations through what is our access partners. Um, these are sort of medium to small markets similar to Canada. And we all partner together uh, to try to um, attract uh, these novel products uh, to come to to our markets and and in the the access consortiums we have um, working groups that are specific for cell and gene therapies where we talk about how we can harmonize better in those areas uh, and potentially approve simultaneously uh, products in those areas to come to our various jurisdictions um, with the U.S. Uh, FDA and EMA uh, and Japan, we have regular monthly meetings where we discuss cell and gene therapies um, and we talk about uh, how, uh, how we're making our decisions, the regulatory frameworks we use for that, and we try to um, share information uh, so that we can harmonize in that way better as well. Josephine, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the super office. A lot of us have heard that there's a, super, a specialized super office that's going to work with the FDA dealing with these. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What does that mean? What uh, What is going to happen? So the new super office within the FDA, CBER, is, is the OTP, so the Office of Therapeutic Products. Um, and this is what used to be OTAT, the Office of Tissues and Advanced Therapies, which transitioned into the super office structure. Uh, so within the super office, there are six different offices that are created. Um, and um, in addition to the reorganization and how it was structured, also just the number of uh, the size of the offices is growing um, quite a lot. They, um, I think the office was established uh, early last year in 2023. Um, they had a goal of hiring 132 new um, uh, employees for within that office and I believe by the end of the calendar year last year, they've um, hired um, about 85% of that number. Um, so they are filling that super office. And, um, you know, it's, it's really showing, I think, their commitment to um, to address the exponential growth in cell and gene therapies. And, you know, the restructuring, I think, really will enable them to, uh, you know, provide oversight and coordinate across the different programs and just ensure the much needed flexibility for, for current and future growth in the staff and um, enhance their expertise and really this highly specialized discipline, the disciplines. That's amazing. And that is, that is a huge amount of hiring. That's a really big investment. So that's very exciting that, that, that there's that amount of interest in this. What is it that companies need to know as they're preparing to work successfully with regulators over the next few years? Obviously, the regulators are getting on board, but what can people who are potentially looking at submitting a therapy or submitting something to Health Canada, the FDA, what can they be doing to prepare? So Michael, I'll ask you a little bit about that. So um, generally, the regulator uh uh, their focus is on the health of, of the citizens of their country and Canada's the health of Canadians. And so everything we do is to support 
um, improving the health of Canadians. I think that's a, a that there's commonalities in that goal between the regulator and industry, um, and so that's something that needs to be kept in mind when interacting with the regulator. Um, you shouldn't be looking at the regulator as your enemy and a hurdle that you need to get over, but as someone that you can work with in order to help ensure that your product is being developed and tested uh, optimally in the best way possible. And I think that brings me to, to um, uh, some advice I would have is to, you know, that it, um, <clears throat> uh, it, it's really important to to understand and characterize your product as, as much as possible, to really know the risks of the product as much as possible, to understand the manufacturing process and what the critical elements of that manufacturing process are in order to have a product that is high quality and, and high performing. Um, and if you can come to the regulator with that knowledge and share that with them uh, and rationalize why you've developed your product in the way you have, why you've tested it in the way you have, and why the data supports um, a good understanding of the risks and the benefits, uh, then you'll have um, some really good successes with the regulator. There's also a lot of guidance documents out there that can help you um, understand what regulatory expectations are. And a lot of those guidance documents are harmonized. Um, Health Canada is a member of ICH, as you've, um, Josephine mentioned. And so we rely heavily on ICH guidance documents. And, and so if industry reviews those and understands uh, those documents, then they have a, would have a really good understanding of what the expectations of the regulator are. That's really helpful. And I love that advice of not looking at regulators as a hurdle, because I think that's sort of a stigma that people have when they're looking at that. And it's very true that the patient, the person that is at the center of this is the most important. Josephine, I'd love if you have any advice for people who are looking to submit to regulators over the next few years, what they should be thinking about. Uh, not much to add. I mean, I think, you know, to add to, to Michael's point about look at the regulator as your partner along the along the journey, right? Communication is really key, um, like any relationships. Uh, so <laughs> really utilize these these new programs, also initiatives that they have. They have all sorts of interactions pathway for the developers, right? So and also, you know, utilize the the multi-stakeholder industry associations or consortiums that are out there who often engage and have good relationships with the regulators to um, suggest or even advocate for necessary changes if it's, you know, if, if that's required, right? Um, they put out draft guidances every now and then and seek feedback from the public. And I think, yeah, I think at the end of the day, the field is new and everyone is still learning. And so I think for everyone to be successful, it's everyone's job to educate each other. Um, you know, it's, it's our job to help the regulators also understand what the challenges are and keep them up to date so they can make the right regulatory policies moving forward for, for these products. And that leads me to sort of a follow-up question, which is a lot of the people who are working in this field are thinking about how these therapies are extremely expensive. Is cost something that the regulators consider when you're looking at the approval process or how does that work? Uh, so um, in Canada, the regulatory framework does not take into cost. Uh, the decisions are made solely based on the scientific merits and the um, uh, risk and benefit profile of the product. 
Um, however, we do recognize that cost can be prohibitive, and sometimes we have products that are approved in Canada that never make it to market because they don't get uh, reimbursed by the provinces. And, and so what we've done is initiate um, collaborations with um, the health technology assessors uh, in both Quebec and nationally. Uh, we've developed some programs that allow uh, the technology assessors to review um, their uh, products uh, simultaneously with us so they can make decisions quicker. Um, but also that allows us to sort of share information and advice um, that hopefully can help inform their decision-making and recommendations to the provinces for reimbursement um, and and uh, helping them develop guidance as well, uh, which can be used to industry to, to help them understand their decision-making processes. Um, so some of the more recent ones have been on uh, real-world evidence and the use of real-world evidence uh, for um uh, making decisions uh, with the health technology assessors. Uh, health Canada has looked uh, and helped develop that guidance with them. Um, and a lot of the um, information in that guidance uh, we would agree with and also be able to use in an in a, a authorization decision. So, so a lot of uh, interesting things there. And Josephine, is there anything you'd like to add about how that's being done in the U.S. in terms of costs? I think everyone hears so much about costs in the news that this is a question that's often at top of mind with these types of therapies. Uh, yeah, I think it's similar. Um, FDA, I don't believe, has authority over, over drug pricing. Uh, that's ICER's job. So the um, ICER is the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review. Um, so they evaluate the evidence of the economic value of the drug, and they engage with, um, you know, again, all the key stakeholders, including the patient groups and the clinical experts and insurers as well. So to, to inform and then to translate the evidence uh, into pricing and uh, insurance coverage policies that will you know, hopefully improve patient outcomes while also controlling costs. Um, and I, I believe they have a mechanism to, you know, continue collecting data post uh, approval and post-market um, so, you know, they can um, uh, reflect these latest data in, in their assessment as well. So a lot that goes into that as well. And there's often talk about the potential benefits to patient weighed against factors like cost and complexity. Josephine, is that something that goes into the regulatory decisions at all, the, uh, the potential patient benefits? Yeah, um, I, I believe these are all yeah part of the review process. Um, I mean, obviously, ultimately, the product has to show safety and efficacy to the patients. And, you know, what that right measure is, is, is something that you discuss along the way during development. Um, and when you're talking about complexity, I, I assume you mean just, you know, manufacturing complexity, uh, and so these are also part of the review. Um, your your submission to the FDA should show that, uh, you know, d despite how complex it is to manufacture these products, that you can manufacture them consistently and it meets the the quality specifications every time you you make it. Wonderful. And Michael, did you have anything you wanted to add about how Health Canada weighs those decisions from a regulatory standpoint in terms of potential benefits versus cost versus the complexity of manufacturing or those things that are factored in? So definitely when we look at risk, um, 
uh, we look at risks to manufacturing as well as um, safety and clinical risks. Um, cost, again, isn't factored into that. Um, but um, <clears throat> so I think, especially in the rare disease space, um, we uh, are exploring new ways to look at risk at the manufacturing and at the clinical level, understanding that a lot of times you can have a limited amount of data um, on these um, products uh, prior to approval. Um, so I think uh, one thing that came out of the pandemic was the idea of platform technologies and how we can um, take advantage of platforms to better understand risks and better understand manufacturing. Um, so that is one area, and I know that the FDA is focusing as well on that area and trying to take advantage of platforms to maybe help reduce the amount of uh, data that would be required uh, to um, demonstrate the risk or, or use more broadly data from, from your platform that's been developed and used in different indications to try to uh, address risk. Uh, so, you know, these are some of the things we're exploring. So it really is such an exciting time in this industry. And I think people are really looking at next steps and they're really excited that the regulatory agencies are starting to to really form these groups and and put these uh, guidelines in place and do all this stuff and so i'm going to ask each of you as we sort of wrap up the interview what are some of the big takeaways that you'd like to share with people in the industry as we move forward what are some of the things that you're most excited about josephine did you want to go first sure um start with a challenge and then end with a happy note what <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's still many challenges, right? There's still just extremely complex and expensive drugs to make. Um, and, you know, achieving alignment on pricing reimbursement has proven to be very tricky for these drugs. Um, I want to say the current biggest challenge is, is patient access, right? So now we know how to manufacture them, and there's a number of them approved, but still not many reach the patient's. And I want to say, I think the whole field is working to make these therapies more available to the patients. There's the cost issue, you know, the drugs are expensive, but there's also, you know, some patient reluctance as well to embrace these new modalities um, because there are new. And, you know, I think to, to Michael's point earlier, you know, platformization, um, automation, I think these are all, you know, methods that everyone is exploring to reduce costs. But there are systemic problems, you know, how, how patients are referred that also need to be resolved to increase patient access. Um, and also, importantly, I think building the narrative around the benefits of these therapies is very important. I was, um, I was at Advanced Therapies Week last week, and the plenary was a CAR-T patient um, who received CAR-T as a seventh-line therapy. So seventh-line. She's received six other therapies before over 12 years and have spent millions of dollars of medical bills, right? So um, it's very easy to focus on that price tag of CAR-T, which is, you know, can be half a million dollars, right? But that itself is not the biggest financial burden for the patient. Um, so again, I think, you know, of course, moving CAR-T as an earlier line of treatment is, is a way of overall reducing that financial burden. But you know, as a community, I think really having that narrative of what the benefits are of these therapies is very important to and to not focus on that price tag. Um, and I'll end on a happier note. You know, I think the industry is, is actively working 
through many of these issues in real time, and there continues to be um, advances scientifically and also just uh, incredible innovations in the technology that really push the adoption of these therapies. Um, and, you know, ARM, we're, we're doing our job. We're trying to, to help the industry as an association um, through these industry and regulatory engagements that, you know, ways to create efficiency in manufacturing and improve policy um, and regulatory environment as well. That is some really inspiring things and a lot of food for thought. That CAR-T example is a really excellent one that people can be thinking about. So, Michael, I would love your thoughts as we as we wrap up about some of the things that you think are key takeaways in this area and some of the things that you're looking forward to as we move forward. Yeah, you know, I really agree with Josephine. I think we need to look at differently the cost-benefit ratios, um, taking into account uh, the lifetime uh, costs of the burden of some of these diseases, but also the quality of life burden of some of these diseases, which is difficult to put a cost value on. Um, but we have to find a way to take that into account. And potentially patient engagement and patient involvement is a way to do that. I think a lot of us are looking at um, new ways to engage and involve patients in our decision making. And that's when I say a lot of us, I, I don't mean just regulators. I, you know, the health technology assessors are looking at that. The clinicians are looking at that for how they're designing their trials. And, and I think that's where it needs to be at. Is it needs to be um, a very broad and uh, uh, all strategies need to take in it to be encompassing all different areas of. of uh, what can impact um, access. Um, from a regulatory perspective, things I'm very excited about is uh, sort of our novel thinking around this. Uh, people don't often think of regulators as uh, innovative, um, but I'll tell you, and, and I've been in Health Canada for 15 years, and this is probably the most innovative way we've been working is in this space. Um, in the ultra, in the rare and ultra rare disease space, but also just in cell and gene therapies and and novel products in general, um, thinking about you know what our regulatory burdens are and how we can tackle those. Um, uh, how we, can we? Is there anything we can do in the regulatory space to uh, reduce costs by reducing regulatory burden? These are the kind of ex things that really sort of excite me as a scientist who's moved up into executive is to be able to think creatively and come to creative solutions. These are some really exciting things. I think this was a very informative conversation as well as a really inspiring one. So I want to thank both of you for joining me on the show today. Yeah. Thank you, Krista. Happy to be here. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. I'm Krista Lamb and you've been listening to commercializing living therapies with CCRM. If you liked today's show, please be sure to share it with others. You can find more episodes at ccrm.ca backslash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you have a question or comment about the show, email us at podcast at ccrm.ca or reach out to us on social media at ccrm underscore ca. Our hashtag for social media sharing is ccrm podcast. Thanks for listening.